You're listening to the Sojourn Mantras podcast. We're currently in the book of Philippians. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmantras.com. Well, I have to confess, uh, I've never seen a miracle. I should say, what I mean by that is, I've never seen something like unbelievably miraculous. Um, you know, I've heard stories even from good friends of mine about uh, people who pray that that one leg that was too short, that it would grow to a normal length, and right there in front of them, it grew back to a normal length. I've never seen that. Uh, I've heard stories about men who go into new places where the gospel hasn't been heard, and uh, I heard this story exactly just the other day, that this woman came up to him and said, if you really, if you really do know the living God, and you really are, this is really true, then get your God to raise my son from the dead. And she threw him on the ground at his feet. And the man prayed and carried him and prayed and asked God, and the kid lived. I've never seen that, but I have no reason to doubt it. And I think instead, because we don't see that kind of stuff, what we have instead is this sort of pursuit of the spiritual high, right? And if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go on a retreat, you do something, maybe even just a really great service with a great visiting preacher, I don't know. Um, and you just feel like, man, I've seen the face of God today. And when you're in that moment, we all feel the same thing. We all think, how can I stay here? How can I stay right here? Because I don't want to leave this. If this is where God is, then I don't want to leave this because I don't want to leave God. And every time I think of this, I think of what happened to, to Peter, James, and John in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus takes them up on the mountain and he shows them who he is and all of his glory. And Elijah's there and Moses is there. And they're just, they're just having a conversation. It had to be the craziest thing. And Peter, being impetuous as he is, say, says, hey, Jesus, why don't, we, uh, why don't we set up some tents and we can just, we can just stay up here? And Jesus, you know, they don't stay up there. Instead, they go back down into the valley, and immediately what they're met with is the messiness and ugliness of ministry and life. And we all feel like, man, when I have seen the face of God, and then I got to go back down into this mess, and I don't see him down there. There's just, there's just nonsense going on down there. I want to be here with God. And that's not a, a bad impulse, but the problem is it, it tends to make us into spiritual junkies and not disciples. People are always looking for that next high, that next incredible experience, rather than learning to recognize that God is in the ordinary, in the mundane, that he is working in all of this. And I came across this quote from Eugene Peterson just this week, and I want to read it to you. It's a little long, but hang on till the end. He says, it turns out, But the hardest thing is to believe that God's work, this dazzling creation, this astonishing salvation, this cascade of blessings, is all being worked out in and under the conditions of our humanity, at picnics and around dinner tables, in conversations and while walking along roads, in puzzled questions and homely stories with blind beggars and suppurating lepers, at weddings and at funerals. Everything that Jesus does and says takes place within the limits and conditions of our humanity. No fireworks, no special effects. There are miracles, plenty of them, 
But because for the most part, they are so much a part of the fabric of everyday life, very few notice. The miraculousness of miracle is obscured by the familiarity of the setting, the ordinariness of the people involved. And I read that, and I read it again, and I read it again because it so struck me right between the eyes. How often do I live there? Pray for God and do something miraculous. And he's saying to me, man, I already am and you're missing it. You're not paying attention. And I thought, you know, how, how, do, how do we know that God is working, working in you, in this church, in me, in dealing with this new series of, of life in a new city? How do, we, how do we live in this new city that God's called us to in Christ while still living in the city of Houston? How do we track with what God is already doing here? So we don't miss it, and we see where he is and what he's doing and what he wants to do in us. How do we make sure that we're on board with that, that we know what's happening? Well, I think there, there's two things specifically that, that Paul points out to us. Two ordinary miracles that we that become so normal to us that we forget to see them for what they are. And the first one of all, starting in verse 3, is just simply fellowship. The ordinary miracle of fellowship. He says in verses 3 to 5 that I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word in verse 5 that's translated partnership, it's a word that most of us, again, if you've been in the church world for any period of time, you've heard the Greek word behind it about a million times, and it's the word koinonia. It's a word that here is translated partnership, but there, there's, it's become so familiar to us, we've lost sort of the fullness of it. So it's helpful to look other places and get a, another idea. Another place it's used is in Acts chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, it says that this early church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, there it is, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So in one instance, he says it's participation, and in another, it's meant fellowship. Still in another place, Paul puts it this way, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership, here it is, of righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. The point being that fellowship, this koinonia, it's a lot more than just interaction, right? It's it's a lot more just sort of being acquainted with one another. Instead, it's this knitting of life together. It's it's about coming together of, of different, disparate pieces to create something new. And where does this come from? Why am I saying that this is a miracle? Well, to start with, John puts it this way, that what we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. What John is saying is that their faith, their fellowship, this koinonia with God through Christ, is making them a new people. That it's changing the fundamental thing about them, the most important essential component of who they are, is fellowship with God and fellowship with this new people of God. That God is bringing together something new. That their faith made them an open people. 
Paul used this this word again in verse 7 when he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We've got partnership, participation, fellowship, partakers. Something is happening here that, that is more than just, hey, we've kind of decided to come together and work this thing out. Something unique is occurring, something different, that this relational oneness of bringing together different kinds of people from different places, different backgrounds, different makeups into a new people of God. And when we stop for a moment and go back to the book of Acts, where we first are told what happened in this city before this letter was written. We see Paul and Silas going along, coming into Macedonia, what is now generally Turkey, coming into this city. And first they meet a wealthy, successful businesswoman named Lydia. She comes to faith. Next thing, they, they meet this poor young girl who was possessed or controlled by some sort of demon and being used by men who saw that they could make a profit off of her. And I think it's probably one of the funniest stories. Uh, Luke in Acts 16 tells us that Paul became annoyed. He sees this woman possessed and she's just badgering him and he gets annoyed and says, enough, cast this demon out. At, At which point the people who are trafficking this poor girl get pretty pissed off that they've now lost their business. And so they do what anybody would do, and they just beat him nearly to death and then send him to prison. So there they are in prison, still worshiping the Lord, still sharing the gospel, and an earthquake comes, breaks the prison open, and then they lead the prison warden to faith. So we've got a wealthy Gentile businesswoman, a former uh, victim of trafficking and demonic possession, and a prison warden, we're now all a part of this new people of God. And you couldn't get any more different than that. Besides the fact that Paul is uh, Jewish, like really Jewish, right? He'll tell us in chapter three that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. It doesn't always mean a whole lot to us, but basically he followed every rule there was about being a good Jew and then some. He was Jewish. And one of the biggest things that Jews didn't do was spend any time with people who weren't Jewish. And they definitely did not thank God for what he's doing among non-Jews. Instead, good Jews, they thank God that they weren't a Gentile. And yet here we are with a Jew and a bunch of Gentiles And Paul's saying, you're partakers of grace with me. You have fellowship with me, partnership with me, this relational, intimate connection with me. Because what God is doing here is bigger than any one of us, bigger than anything that you or I could come up with or think about. And something that I think is interesting, something that this challenges us with, is that fellowship is a lot more than presence. Right? It's a lot more than just being around. Because even now, Paul is writing this letter another time in prison and sending it back to Philippi. And he's saying, I have fellowship with you. Well, how can he have fellowship with people who are hundreds of miles away if he's not there? 
The fact is, fellowship isn't dependent on presence. In fact, it's more than that. It's more than just being around. It's more just kind of seeing what's going on. Because the truth is, we can be present at meals, we can be present in parish, we can be present on a Sunday gathering. Still not a fellowship. We can be here. Still not have anything. Still not experience that ordinary miracle fellowship. And I, I think sometimes part of that is because man, we, we just miss what is at the heart of it. This heart of what I've mentioned before of God bringing together different people. Paul will say it differently in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that at one time, you Gentiles were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel and without God and without hope in the world. But because Christ has come, they've been brought in, they've been brought together, creating out of two separate people, one new man. That's only something God could do. Imagine, we'll we'll put this sort of in more contemporary circumstances. Imagine that many of the people in the gay community here in Montrose that read the story about Pastor Marshall and were some indifferent, some furious. What if God did something and brought these two so very different groups of people together? What if God did something so that all of the hatred and confusion and vitriol between these two groups, man, it was gone? All of us would have to recognize that is only something God can do. That's not, man, that's not, that's not something. I, I'm not that creative, number one. And I'm certainly not that diplomatic, number two, or charismatic. That's the power of God. Man, even in a room like this, man, we forget how incredible it is that there are all different kinds of people together in one place for one reason. Right? We've got, we've got engineers and artists. There can't be two more different groups of people than engineers and artists, and yet God is bringing them together. And not just bringing them together so you're around each other, right? But having meaningful, regular, consistent interaction and relationship with each other. That's the power of God. That's something miraculous. Because the reality is, it's the blood of Jesus that glues us together. Anything else, it's not going to hold. It's not going to keep us together when, things are, when people are too different. It's only the blood of Christ that can bring together such different people and create that kind of oneness, that kind of unity. That's the power of God. So we tend to overlook that miraculous work of fellowship. There's another thing. There's another thing we overlook, and that's simply the, the ordinary miracle of love. Ordinary miracle of love. Look at verse 8 and following. Paul says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. It's interesting that he says that this this yearning, this longing he has to be with them. He says it's with the affection of Christ. 
In other words, what he's saying is that what I'm feeling for you is the same kind of love that Christ himself has for you. That God has worked in Paul in such a way that he has this same love that Christ had for his enemies. He says, I love you in such a different way than I'm prone to. That this must be the power of God. So he prays. Paul always prays at the beginning of of these letters, and he prays in different ways and for different things. But this time, in verse 9, he prays for two things. Two things I find very interesting, especially when we get into this topic of love. He prays, number one, for knowledge. That their love would grow. How is it going to grow? Number one, in knowledge. How else is it going to grow? In discernment. And I, I say I find that interesting because when I think of love, I don't generally think of uh, information. Right? I don't think of facts. Um, I, I knew that I loved my wife when I married her. But now, almost five years later, that love looks very different than it did that January so many years ago. And I think part of what the difference has been is that I know this woman. I know her far more than I ever did before. And that has a way of changing your love. And that's, that's why I find this interesting is because he can't, he can't just mean information. Right? It can't just be facts. Like I, I, I know all kinds of facts about all kinds of things. But this kind of knowledge that he's talking about, it has a, a relational and, and moral edge to it. It's not just, well, you know, I know her hair's brown. And, uh, well, I thought she had blue eyes, but those are really color contacts. And she actually has green eyes, right? I know that stuff. But that's different than having a knowledge that abounds in love. And I also know, I also know things about her, and now, as a, having been a father for a year, I know things about my son that I, I, can, I can tell where they come from. I can tell that, man, that is true and good, and I want to affirm that, or that isn't. Someone told you that, or you've believed that yourself, and that's, we want to get rid of that. I'm able to discern her in love. And I think one of the challenges being a young and enthusiastic church, as we're all growing in our understanding of who God is, we're growing in our understanding of, of doctrine, is that we can, we can get information and love kind of goes out the window. And so we can, we can passionately pursue all of this knowledge of God, but we, we slowly start to be less and less like him. Because what matters most to me is, man, are you on board with what I'm thinking over here? Are you you tracking with what I really am agreeing with or no? And I know this full well because I was there, right? Bible college has a way of making jerks out of all of us. And I know that too well also. Because, man, I know all kinds of stuff, but I haven't learned love. I'm not, I don't ever want to say that this stuff doesn't matter. If it didn't matter, I wouldn't have spent all these years of my life studying. It matters. But it's only good and noble and true 
insofar as it's consistent with the person of Christ. The one who John says was the word. He is the one who came and revealed God to us as the opening of the book of Hebrews says that he was this final revelation from God, the son himself. If there is anyone who had good theology, it's Jesus Christ. But what did he say to his disciples? John chapter 13. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. How? Because you passed a systematic theology test? I don't think so. You love one another. We forget, and we forget about the miracle that love is. And part of it is, man, it's, it's this sort of culture we're swimming in, right? Love is everything, but it's, it certainly doesn't have an edge to it. Right? Love, love, love isn't about discernment, right? I met a pastor the, about two weeks ago. He's, he was introduced to me as uh, the Tim Keller of the Arab world. So naturally, I was impressed. Um, but he was, just, he was just this little, kind, friendly Egyptian man. And he told us about everything that's gone on in Cairo, where his church is, just a block away from all of the rioting and violence that occurred with the Arab Spring. And we just asked him, man, how are, how are you guys doing it? What, what, what really is happening over there? You know, now, first it was the Arab Spring, then it was Libya, and now it's ISIS. Like, what is happening? And, and what, is, what is the church doing? And he said, there's only two things that I would have to say to you guys, planting churches. Number one, man, you've got to be humble. You really need to get it down deep in your bones. That it's about Jesus, not you. And you need to take that verse seriously when Jesus says that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. He said, number one, you've got to die. And number two, you need to love. You need to love people. You need to love the people that are banging down your door wanting to cut off your head. You need to love the people that one day, one day they were harassing you in the street, but the next day their leg has been blown off and they need someone to care for them. That's what their church did with all this violence and everything that was going on just a block away. They were the ones to bring in the injured and care for them. They were the ones to give housing to those who'd been run out of their homes, to give food and water to the people who needed it. And he said, it has been unbelievable what is happening now. Millions of people over the Arab world leaving Islam. And every single time it has to do with the fact that Christians loved their enemies. That's a miracle. That is incredible. Because even Jesus says, man, anyone can love those who love him back. Anyone can do that. My dog could do that. But to love your enemies? And only God can do that. So we, we forget just how miraculous these simple things are, this love, this fellowship, this communion. We have, even in this room, that you have with each other. God, is, God has been at work here. And he has been at work. So how, how do we... 
how do we keep doing this? How do, how do we sort of cultivate fellowship and love? Right? Like, that's the next question. Great, we've got it. How do we make sure we don't lose it? Well, if you've been tracking with me, you may have noticed I skipped a verse. And there's a reason I did that. It's because it's so essential, and I wanted to wait till this moment to bring it up. Chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And some will say, and I feel like there's some truth to this, that really what Paul's talking about is he's saying, man, you, you, you partnered with me, and that was God's work. He moved you to do that. And he, he's going to keep moving you to do that until the day he comes back. Because the whole reason for this letter is, uh, as we learn in chapter 4, is that the Philippians were worried about Paul. They had sent him possibly multiple financial gifts, but then they couldn't give any more. And he says, you, you were concerned for me. And this is essentially him saying, I got, I got the gifts, and thank you, and I'm okay. And so to some degree, I think he's simply saying that God moved you to do that, and he's going to keep moving you to do that. But like many people, we understand that he's also talking about something else, and it's simply the idea that what God starts, he finishes. God doesn't leave anything sort of undone. And we know that Paul is really leading towards that greater idea because he he repeats it again in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he'll say this in Galatians chapter 3, that having begun by the Spirit, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Look, God did all this work to get this thing started, so is it now up to you? And the way he writes the question, it's undeniable that the answer is no, absolutely not. What God starts, he finishes. And when God has started to birth love in a people and fellowship in people, he continues in that work. He doesn't just sort of do a little bit to kind of prop it up and then go do something else and say, well, maybe you'll figure it out. What God has started, he finished. And so if God has been creating love and sojourn Montrose and building fellowship among you, he's going to keep doing it. He's going to continue to bring about people who are known and defined by his love, who have been brought together by the blood of Christ. And that is in part why we're so all about church planting is because we recognize that this is is what God wants to do. This is how he is bringing love and fellowship to the city of Houston. He's sending men and women all across this city so that maybe we might reach the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth might see and understand the simple miracle that is love and fellowship. And I keep saying ordinary because the truth is that is exactly what God loves to do. He loves to use the most ordinary, mundane, unassuming things to do incredible things. He'll say that in 1 Corinthians 1, that God has chosen what is foolish of the world to shame the wise. He'll say in 2 Corinthians that we are jars of clay 
cracked, chipped. We're not dressed up. We're not painted up. We're not the best there is, but God uses us. And if you ever doubted that God uses the most ordinary things to remind us of his love and the fellowship we have with him, then I want you to remember that when we gather in just a minute to take the Lord's Supper, that you're eating one of the most ordinary things there is. And that you're drinking one of the most ordinary drinks there could be. Every culture in all of history through all the world has had bread. And they nearly all have had wine or juice. So Jesus is choosing to use an ordinary thing when he says, take this and eat it and do so in remembrance of me. And drink this cup and every time you drink it, remember me. He's declaring not only that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the, the resurrection, as the only Lord and Savior, but he's also saying, I use the most mundane, ordinary things to show my glory in this world. But if God can use a piece of bread to remind me of the grace that I have in Christ, then I'm pretty sure he can use me. He can use us to be a people who live out those, that miracle of God, that love each other, and have fellowship with each other. Let's pray.